0: Welcome back to New World Next Week. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And I'm James Evan Pilato for MediaMonarchy.com. Rather suggest that a lot of this was propaganda. We've got that
1: story plus Saudi trillions, but first, while you slept, government created internal passports. The deadline of yet another and perhaps the most insidious element of the post 9 11 initiatives like Homeland Security, TSA, never ending war of terror. One of the most insidious is less than one year from fruition beginning no later than October 1st, 2020, citizens of all US states and territories will be required to have a real ID compliant card or US passport to board a commercial plane or enter a federal government facility, which we're all, of course, always super excited to do. Pundits citing the inevitability of what amounted to a national ID card have regrettably been vindicated. To be sure, some states have resisted, but dependence upon federal aid and other programs administered from D.C. make their ultimate surrender and compliance inevitable. Looking back, social security numbers and the cards bearing them broke ground for the path to a national ID system. Thank you, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He's also the one who outlawed weed and locked up Japanese Americans in concentration camps. Hero of the left. Real ID also represents essentially the last mile in the ability for the state to track individuals in real time. Expect it, over time, to be leveraged against individuals with outstanding traffic tickets, tax disputes, child spousal support arrears, behind on loan payments, access to national parks and historic sites may also be tied to it, and recent proposals pushing compulsory voting are a step closer to realization and enforcement with the establishment of a mandatory government ID. Census data, drug prescriptions, library habits are likely to eventually be linked with personal data associated with the new ID requirement. And if the real ID is eventually accessible by the private sector, many individuals with innocuously tainted personal histories may become effectively unemployable. Now, of course, Progressive Oregon, they digitized their driver's licenses years ago. They were one of the first states to actually be real ID compliant. So between that and going to Japan recently, I guess I'm i am now on all the lists. Papers, please. Government creates internal passports effective no later than October 2020.
0: James? Now, here's an interesting part of this story that was picked up on by the writer at the end of the article that we're going to link up in the show notes. I hope you'll go and read through the whole article. But at the end, Peter Earle writes, Relatedly, where is the media attention? Has a single newspaper headline, let alone a three- or five-minute spot within the incessant droning of the 24-7 media cycle, been dedicated to the impending arrival of an American national ID program? The increasingly partisan, mindless political banter would be tolerable if... Occasionally, the media served its role as a public toxin. Um, that's a that's a good part. Uh, that's a good observation and a good thing to note here, because we often talk about social conditioning and social engineering, and the public being conditioned to accept things that previously would have been unacceptable or even unthinkable. And this is one of those uh, one of those specific cases that really, uh, for whatever reason, I really see the way that this has developed. And I will refer people back to a a video that I did almost five years ago now that I think is an important one, so I hope people will re-watch it. It's called You Are Being Programmed to Accept the Global ID Control Grid. And in that video, I went through this Real ID program and, and what it represented, but I also went through that history that you talked about, the 1930s and the introduction of the Social Security system and then the Social Security card with the Social Security number that was assigned to all working uh, American citizens. And at that time, there was, there was a public freakout. People were concerned. Oh, the government is going to be handing us this number and they're going to be using it to track us and, and figure out what we're doing. And, and, and this is surveillance. This is what we're fighting against. This is communist, all of this. That was the concern back in the 1930s to the extent that the government had to say, no, 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 this is not for any kind of identification purpose. This is only for social security and taxes. Don't worry, we're not creating some sort of national database here. This is not a national ID. They even put it on the card for social security purposes, not for identification. And yet, fast forward several decades, and as this article points out, not only is the national ID here, but actually people don't even seem to notice, let alone care. I mean, it doesn't even register. Oh, there's a national ID now, or all our cards are tied into some national system. Oh, wait, whatever. That is an incredible change in consciousness that's happened in several decades. And and in, it, it may be only one example of the million that we can see in the way that the public is being conditioned, but it's an interesting one to examine. If you can figure out how the public was conditioned to arrive at the point where something that caused a public freakout is now accepted without second thought, if you can see that process in action, then in a way. you can decode how the entire social conditioning works.
1: This has all been massive changes over the last, I mean, my wife and I talk about it at home a lot. Essentially, since they introduced genetically modified foods, all the pesticides and everything, once essentially Bill Clinton changed all the media laws, a lot of this stuff really got rolling, honestly, in the nineties and you, and you do, you make a great point. Wouldn't this be a great thing for MSNBC to bring up against that awful Trump? He's going to give us a national ID card. And even as I was thinking that, James, as you were talking, I was like, oh, wait, they will. I just have to wait a few more months because it'll be thrown into the mess of 2020 presidential selection politics. That's when they'll talk about it. So we move to our second story on this New World Next Week, episode 391 for November 7th, 2019. And it is a biggie. OPCW losing credibility is even more revelations surface on Duma. This coming via fantastic work of Caitlin Johnstone on her Steemit account. During a recent BBC radio interview, award-winning journalist Jonathan Steele said that he attended a briefing by a new whistleblower from the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, OPCW, investigation into that alleged 2018 chemical attack in Duma, Syria, who claimed that the OPCW suppressed his findings, which contradicted the organization's official conclusion that a chlorine gas attack had taken place. This, according to Steele, is a second whistleblower coming forward on the OPCW's Duma investigation. Of course, that was the first time that Trump was really cheered on. Ah, he's starting to bomb countries. Well, now he's presidential. The first whistleblower being the leaker of an engineering assessment document which surfaced this past May, contradicting the OPCW's official ballistics report, which the organization hid from the public. Jonathan Steele said on this radio interview, quote, I was in Brussels last week. I attended a briefing by a whistleblower from the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. He was one of the inspectors who was sent out to Duma in Syria in April last year to check into the allegations by the rebels that Syrian aeroplanes had dropped two canisters of chlorine gas, killing up to 43 people. He claims he was in charge of picking up the samples in the affected areas and in neutral areas to check whether there were chlorine derivatives there, and he found there was no difference." So it was rather suggested there was no chemical gas attack, because in the buildings where the people allegedly died, there was no extra chlorinated organic materials than in the normal streets elsewhere. And I put this to the OPCW for comment, and they haven't yet replied, but it rather suggests that a lot of this was propaganda. James, more and more propaganda. More than you could even cover on a
0: Propaganda Watch episode. Exactly right, but not more than I could cover in the annual Real Fake News Awards. As corporate report devotees will remember back from episode 351 at the beginning of this year, the second annual Real Fake News Awards, the fake news story of the year for 2018, went to Donald Trump for propounding the Duma chemical strike uh, false flag as a real news story when it was a fake news story, and using that as the basis for the launching of the Syria strikes. Uh, We... We had all sorts of different vectors and angles into that story at the time, but even more information has come out since I went over that in the Fake News Awards back in uh, January. Obviously, at that time, the OPCW, this neutral arbiter that's looking into these chemical weapon strikes and and finding the evidence, the scientific evidence about what happened, had only issued its interim report. It has since obviously issued its final report, which was immediately followed up by one of the whistleblowers who has uh, come forward to blow the whistle on the OPCW and the way it constructed its report. And I'll throw the link into Global Research, for people who missed that story back in May, evidence that Duma chemical attack was staged, OPCW's unpublished engineer's report. And now we have the second whistleblower. So here's a real whistleblower story, expose, that is not making media headlines for obvious reasons, precisely because this is deconstructing a false flag in real time. You can see the mechanics of how this was not just engineered and then propagated through the fake news outlets and then propagated by the president himself. That's straightforward enough for people who know anything at all about false flags, but also how it's institutionalized through neutral arbiters like the OPCW. So it is all falling apart, and I hope people will go back through the links. uh, If you missed the story as it was originally developing or uh, the latest developments, I hope you'll go through them and see the timeline of it unfolding, because even for people who know a thing or two about false flags, it is interesting to watch this story being deconstructed in real time.
1: And James, was this when Trump and and gang dropped the mother of all bombs, the giant destructive weapon that, of course, got lots of news attention?
0: I'm not sure those were the same serious strikes that we're referring to. (laughs) I might be
1: mixing up my horrible war crimes and atrocities based on sketchy, possible, shady, false flag events. Sorry about that. (laughs) Our third and final story here on This New World Next Week, episode 391, Big Money. Saudi Aramco's trillion-dollar mystery, this coming from oilprice.com. After years of delays, Saudi Arabia's oil giant, Aramco, the world's largest oil producer and the most profitable company in any sector in the world, announced its intention to proceed with an initial public offering, an IPO on the Saudi stock market. But Aramco still needs to clear one important hurdle. Its valuation, how much moolah will it be worth? Saudi Aramco will issue the prospectus for the IPO on November 9th, coming up here in just two days, with the actual listing on the domestic Taduul exchange expected to take place sometime in December. The announcement of the intention to float... Is an important step forward for the company and the top Saudi leadership after years of delays of, again, what would be the world's largest IPO in history. What this initial announcement didn't announce was how much of its oil Saudi giant, of course, will list on its domestic market and how much money it will raise. Some analysis puts the total valuation of the company at $2 trillion. The same figure, I think, that Donald Rumsfeld mentioned, but also that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has been floating since he first said that the kingdom would list shares in its crown jewel to raise proceeds for economic reforms, including aimed at such things as diversifying Saudi Arabia's economy away from oil. Last week, just ahead of the announcement, Aramco officials and company advisors all flying around the world to go, two trillion, two trillion, two trillion, right? But even the international banksters working on the listing have estimates putting it at one and a half trillion or possibly even lower. James, what's going to happen when the Saudis go for this big
0: IPO? It's a good question. And there's a lot riding on it. And actually, you just framed it in a very interesting way. Because think about that. Yes, Donald Rumsfeld on September 10th, 2001, just blithely announced, oh, yeah, the Pentagon can't uh, account for this $2.3 trillion worth of transactions, i.e., more money than the potential highest valuation for the largest company in the world by a long shot. (laughs) It just kind of went missing behind the couch cushions of the Pentagon. Think about the the size of that. It's a good way of framing that number. But speaking about Aramco, this is an important story, one that I've been covering for a while. We even talked about it here on New World Next Week a couple of years ago When, because they've been talking about it for years now. We're going to list Aramco, we're going to sell shares in it. They've been floating this idea that they're going to sell 5% of the company um, for a, for a while now and there was even that time when people were speculating that they were just going to literally write out, sell 5% of the company to China. Well, obviously that hasn't materialized, so they are going with the IPO route and they're going to list it in Saudi Arabia and on an international exchanges as well, so it is a it is an important move, precisely because this ties into so many different stories that are happening geopolitically and economically, uh, and of course with the big narrative about moving to the post-carbon society and how is Saudi Arabia going to deal with that, oh, well, we're going to have to get diversify from oil, we're going to have to build this Neom city in the desert, this is where all this craziness is swirling around, and it's going to be financed by this 5% sale of Saudi Aramco, question mark, and the question mark has to do with, well, okay, what's the valuation? Is it going to be 2 trillion? Is it going to be 1.3 trillion? Is it going to be something in between? 5% of 1.3 is a lot different than 5% of 2 trillion, and even then, when you look at the actual budget deficit figures that Saudi Arabia is running now, those are very quickly going to consume whatever money is raised from this sale itself, which poses great question marks over MBS, the Mohammed bin Salman, and the the Saudi royal family, and the ruling structures there, and how the society is functioning, because, as we all know, for many decades now, Saudi Arabia has functioned because they have enough money to essentially buy off their population through this great economic transfer program, where, yeah, of course we have the Saudi royal family with their billions, and running around going crazy, and we all know about the crazy things that they do, and their golden cars, and all of that, but... They still give money to the population, and basically, you know, no one has to work too hard for their whole life. I mean, everyone's taken well taken care of. Well, they're starting to run into problems with that in recent years and running a bigger and bigger deficit in order to finance this, and that is coming into question. So how are they going to pay for this, and is the Aramco sale just basically going to go straight into that? I mean, are they going to be able to do anything with this money that they raise? And blah, blah, blah. It's, it's a big story, and it connects, as I say, into not just... Uh, economic matters, not just into financial matters, but into the heart of geopolitics and Saudi Arabia's relations with America and China and where it sits on the grand chessboard and the move to the post-carbon society. So it is an important issue, one that uh, we can't obviously deal with in all its aspects here, so I will be writing about it in the Forecaster editorial this weekend. I hope people will subscribe to corporatereport.com and get the nitty-gritty details of this valuation and what it really means.
1: James, I think these are three pretty good stories to help kind of get us past the, the horror of, of, of the month of October and a lot of kind of disturbing stories that are now, in a way, kind of maybe back to the nitty-gritty of just the geopolitics and the grand chessboard Here's we're already staring down the last two months of what has been a pretty busy 2019. James, as we always wrap up these episodes, I like to remind folks, invite folks, that uh, I stream radio. Monday through Friday, 9 to 5 at mediamonarchy.com slash listen. Love for folks to come check it out. James.
0: All right. We're going to leave it there. Talk to you again next week. All right. Thanks, buddy. Take care.